the Scholars in Iron podcast. So it definitely came out of a pastoral need and kind of this, I really don't know a better way to put it except to say out of the need to make life enjoyable, not just to wake up, work, sleep, and die, you know, and repeat that. Good morning, and welcome to the Scholars in Iron podcast. I'm your host, Joe, coming to you from outside the nation's capital, right here in the DMV. The objective of Scholars in Iron is very straightforward. It's to associate strength training with intellectual endeavors. On the show, we'll examine the connection between capitalism and CrossFit, philosophy and powerlifting, all to raise some hell and even a few questions. By the end of each episode, We'll get one rep closer to living the phrase, civilize the mind, but make savage the body. Now come on, let's lift. Indigenous string sports have been around for hundreds of years, if not a millennia with nearly every continent claiming their own. Most, if not all of these sports, revolve around lifting or throwing implements and equipment found primarily among heavy agricultural work, such as stones, ox carts, axes, and so on. Yet as the march of technological modernity continues on uninterrupted, it's worth asking the question, what will become of these ancient sports under a changing and unpredictable economy? I spoke with Maeve Aguskia, a Basque American who's a competitor in powerlifting and Scottish Highland Games, and has a deep interest in Ere Kirolak, or Basque popular sports. The Basque are a people whose country stretches from northeastern Spain and into southwestern France across the Pyrenees Mountains. They have their own language, their own culture, and their own politics that are quite distinct from those of the Spanish or French. So let's get into it. Maeve, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you got into strength sports? So I am like super proud to be half Basque and half Scottish Irish. And I only recently found out that I'm Scots Irish. We did one of those ancestry DNA tests for my dad because we never knew really where his family was from. And from there, the psychosis just kind of developed even further. So I'm intrigued, basically bordering on obsessed with my heritage and learning more about the Basque and Scottish and Irish history. And totally unrelated to that, I'm also a true crime geek. Like, I could spend days and weeks watching forensic files and documentaries and things like that. I love working out, I like hiking, and I love lifting, which I've only recently gotten into, actually. So last August, my mom and my aunt, my grandmother and I went to the Monterey Highland Games here in Monterey, California, and we spent a good portion of the day, instead of just wandering around, we spent a good portion of the day watching the men's masters group, you know, because these are guys that have been doing this for a while and they've got a lot of experience in what works and what doesn't. And what really kind of drew me in is that we were sitting close enough to the competitors that when some of them were standing back and we had a guy who was throwing, I could ask them questions and they all took the time to explain things like answer my questions and whatnot and that in itself 
really drew me in. I mean, when people can be so welcoming and they're excited that you want to learn about what they're doing, it makes a big difference. And then on Facebook, I kind of looked up some different groups and contacted the Fresno Scottish Society and got in touch with some athletes in the area. And from there is where I actually met my powerlifting coach, Chad Clark, who connected me with a bunch of other lifters and throwers and has taught me a lot about the history of strength sports and the athletes. So I kind of just dove right into it, no hesitation. And I've, to a degree, I've always known about Basque rural sports because I grew up in the Basque community here in California. But unfortunately, there's not a huge interest or demand for them to be performed here. So for me to learn, I really just had to do a lot of research on my own. Now, tell me a little bit more about the Basque. I think Scotland is more imprinted in the cultural and geographic imagination of Americans, but probably less so the Basque. So who are they? Yeah, so I'm going to give a disclaimer right now. This is one of my favorite things to talk about. So I will definitely try to keep myself in check because I could go on forever. (laughs) But basically, the Basque people are an indigenous European people that hail from the Pyrenees Mountains of uh, southern France and northern Spain. And their language, which fascinates me to no end, like the rest of the culture, is one of the most enigmatic in the world. Uh, You could read a number of scholarly texts about it, lots of research, and really there is no way to identify how and when and where the Basque people originated. The language that doesn't have any identifiable roots Scholars and linguists have dedicated their lives to studying and understanding Basque history and language only to find that they had more questions than answers. What is really interesting about that, though, is Spanish, French, Basque, and German have a lot in common, and it's kind of a popular theory that some of these other languages, particularly the Romance languages, have their roots in some sort of Basque dialect. But that's a really complicated line to get down For this purpose, I won't go into that. Now, culturally and the way the Basques interact with one another, they're really kind of salt of the earth people. That is, they made their living by fishing and farming, with fishing actually being the first contribution to global exploration. There's a number of historical accounts say that while on a fishing expedition, the Boscos which is what you refer to Basque people. Boscos landed and settled in North America even before the Vikings. And when I say North America, it was usually uh, northeastern Canada. There's a huge Basque population up there, or at least there used to be. Now, I know that you were a little interested in hearing about Basque politics, and you mentioned earlier that they're a little complicated, and I think that is accurate and, to a degree, kind of an understatement because, historically speaking, The politics are very controversial and focuses generally on nationalism. I mean, you could say that about really any political structure or uh, political culture in the world. But for Bosco, that's really true. They have their own sovereign government, but they don't have their own actual nation as recognized as a nation the way France or Spain or England or the United States are really just don't want to be another ethnic group under French and Spanish rule, which is subject to the whims of policymakers and whoever is in control at the time. One thing that I think is really important to note about the Basque culture and 
to a lesser degree the sport is what their recent history and experience has been like under rule, particularly under Francisco Franco, a totalitarian leader. He, the, the Basques did not fare well. Uh, the Boscos and the Jews were actually some of the most harshly persecuted ethnic groups in the country. Under Franco's rule, speaking Basque was actually grounds for execution in the streets by what he called the anti-terrorist liberation group, literally his death squad, <laughs> of course, illegally founded. But after 20 years of this, the Boscos formed their own, I guess I would call it a paramilitary group called Euskadi Ta Askatasuna which basically means Basque Homeland and Liberty. If anyone wants to read more about it, there's a really good book written by Patty Woolworth called Dirty War, Clean Hands. It's basically a must-read for anyone interested in Basque politics, Francoist suppression, Basque separatism, the Basque conflict, the ETA, the Euskadita Askatasuna, their inclusion as a terrorist group up until 2018 on the U.S. government's terrorist watch list. All of this, the whole complicated, controversial thing is really what helped bolster modern Basque sports. You know, I have a question. You mentioned Basque nationalism and separatism. And the one group that comes to mind in a similar situation is the Irish. And definitely among Irish Americans, there is still this sort of longing for a unified Irish state, which would include Northern Ireland. So I'm curious, do you feel that Basque Americans also have that pull or yearning for an independent Basque nation in a similar way? Absolutely. Absolutely do. And I'm actually glad that you mentioned Irish Americans wanting that for a united Ireland because there's a lot of similarities between the ETA and the IRA in that the goals they have and the way they set out to achieve those goals are similar. And you'll always find kind of a smaller subsect of people who appreciate the goal but don't like the way they've gone about it, you know, car bombings, paramilitarism, things like that, that really don't necessarily achieve a whole lot. And in the U.S., especially amongst the culture, excuse me, the Basque society around here in Central California, that's a big deal. If you were to go to just about any Basque restaurant or cultural center, like in Bakersfield, there are a lot of people who come from the old country who really truly want to see the Basques have their own legitimate government. And I don't mean a sovereign government that still has to answer to another government, but one that they have their own leader, that they are completely independent of another country's rule. So that's a great point to make about the Irish and the Basques. They similar goals. <laughs> you know, on that, I know that there is something of a divergence on the topic, at least with the Irish and Irish Americans, on whether or not an entity like Northern Ireland ought to be reincorporated into the Republic of Ireland. And so I think a good many Irish are probably, you know, fine with the status quo as it remains, but for their brethren in the U.S., not as much. And part of it, I think, is due to the fact that many of them left their families, you know, under a severe British Protestant rule and are probably less likely to, you know, let's say, accept a divided Ireland. So do you see a similar division between Basques in Europe and Basques in the United States on the subject of an independent Basque nation? So that's actually a pretty interesting question. So let me go back to the ETA. 
That is the acronym ETA is for Euskadi Tascatasuna, which was founded in 1959, I want to say it was 1959, as a response to Spanish oppression. Now, if you're not familiar with Basque geography, there's a number of territories that comprise the Basque country, and most of those territories are in Spain. So if we were to look at a map of the Basque country, I would say 90% of it actually exists in the Spanish side. So just by that, the larger population of Basque people are going to be in Spain and therefore experience more of the suppression and oppression by the Spanish government. As a result of that, it seems like most of the Boscos who are against foreign rule really hail from Spain. Now, Basques in America don't necessarily have firsthand experience with a lot of that because many of them didn't live in big cities. Now, that said, most of the people that I come in contact with, the Boscos that I know, are French. We've got a larger French population here in Central California. But as a whole, Boscos really are not happy with rule in France or Spain for different reasons, though. In France, it's a lot of it's an economic type thing, whereas in Spain, it's more of a social order type thing. Both sides are pretty equally unhappy, dissatisfied with foreign rule, but it's more so in Spain because it's a larger area and there's more of a Spanish influence there. Now, is Basque role sports part of Basque politics at all? And I ask this because I remember reading something about the Scottish Highland Games and how some of their events mimicked preparation for war, presumably against the invading English. Is there a similar history for the Basque in these games or do they reflect more of the agrarian nature of the Basque country? Definitely. So I don't know if you have heard this, and I actually don't know if it's 100% true, but like in the Scottish games, we have caber tossing. Now, I always wondered what the origins of caber tossing was, and I once was told that it had to do or evolved out of the need to be able to move huge logs across riverbeds and streams, things like that. And... So to be able to do that, the Scots had to pick them up and literally throw them across the water. Now, again, I don't know how true that is. It gives us a clue about how a lot of these things come about. And I think if this is true for most rural or old world sports. They originate out of work. They originate out of actual work. And then during times of leisure or boredom or even territorial contestations, they become a way to fill the time and settle disputes. So with Scots, and, or excuse me, Picts in ancient Scotland, a lot of these had to do with clan disputes. And so they would take these different sports or different events and have competitions. The strongest men would win and therefore that would settle the dispute. You know, it's kind of a simplistic way of putting it, but I think that gets the gist of it. Now with Basque, it's the same thing. So the rural sports called Heri Kirulak basically originated out of boredom. Yeah. I mean, to, to put it frankly, you have a lot of young boys. I mean, and I say boys because at the time, you know, women and females were too busy doing other types of work, would get bored or they couldn't necessarily contribute to what was necessary work at the time. So they would mimic the older men. Over decades and decades or centuries, it just kind of evolved more into a sporting thing. 
So it definitely came out of a pastoral need and kind of this, I really don't know a better way to put it except to say out of the need to make life enjoyable, not just to wake up, work, sleep, and die, you know, and repeat that, repeat that. So that's how they came about. And then over time, they just evolved less into less about work and more about fun, especially following the Industrial Revolution. So all the work that was once performed by men, you know, doing all this manual labor, the work became obsolete. So they had to stay connected to their roots somehow. And for some areas of the Basque country, it was more about staying connected to roots. And for others, especially in Spain, it was more about being able to control the land and territory that they had. And so what are these events? You know, I heard that there were so many that the Basque regional government had to limit them to like 18. Okay, so this is where it gets really, really fun. There's over 60 different rural games. And some of them are a little more fringy. You know, they have some that involve taking um, hunted ducks or geese and tying them to a rope. And then you've got to stand in a canoe and try and cut this bird down from this rope. And kind of makes you wonder, where the hell did that come from? How is that even useful? And then you have, you know, along that spectrum, these games that actually are useful for testing strength and speed and endurance. So some of the ones that people really train hard for, and I can use the Basque terms or I can just use the English or, or both, but some of the ones that they train for are like wood chopping, also known as Aiskolaritza, where competitors stand on top of wooden trunks and use an axe to chop through them. There's two different ways to do it. Usually they're chopping between their legs, but the first variation has to do with chopping through the wood in as few chops as possible where one is more about speed and basically getting through the block as quickly as you can. Hari Yasotsea, which is stone lifting, which, of course, the Scots have that, but there's different types of stones, different shapes, different weights, usually averaging between 200 and 300 pounds each. Ingude Alchasea, which is anvil lifting. And this one's kind of interesting to me because... It arose from the tradition of blacksmiths having to carry their anvils when they traveled. And then over time, just to kind of entertain themselves, it got to a point where they would want to see who could swing their anvil the highest over their head. Lokochpilsea, which is corncob racing, and that kind of originated out of the need to be able to harvest corn crops quickly. So they would have individuals run up and down each row of horn pick the cobs, and then people behind them would grab those cobs off the ground as quickly as they could. And, again, that just kind of became a, hey, let me see if I can pick up more cobs than you, faster than you. Orgayokwa, which is called cart spinning. <laughs> and a cart, which usually weighs between 400 and 450 pounds, is spun in a circle. So the end of the cart that would normally be attached to a horse or an ox is actually anchored down to a central point, and then the competitor has to pick the cart up and turn it around, you know, run in circles with it. And that originated out of having to angle and navigate carts through steep mountain roads, curvy mountain roads through the Pyrenees. Socatira, which is tug-of-war, that's pretty self-explanatory. Tonsa, which is sawing which 
in the higher altitude areas of the Pyrenees Mountains, that was a huge deal because, you know, before the Industrial Revolution and before blacksmithing and metalworking became the norm, wood was used for everything. So to be able to saw through trees or fell trees quickly was to be successful and be able to make more money to provide for your family. And then chinga aramatea, so weight carrying. And this is a pretty generic term. There are a lot of different chinga type of, and I know in Spanish that's a different word. <laughs> There's a different, different types of weight carrying. So most of these types of weight carries originated from farmers having to lug around these big jugs of goat, sheep, or cow milk. And they didn't, a lot of times they didn't have carts, you know, so they would just have to pick them up and they would carry them sometimes miles at a time. And of course, the faster you could get to your destination and the faster you could get back, the more successful you could be. In modern day, the way these are organized by the government, competitors actually will hold a weight, like a, um, a milk can in each hand and run as many laps as possible with these weights weighing usually 110 to 120 pounds a piece. So if you ever do CrossFit or any type of grip strength and you do a farmer carry, that's basically where those types of exercises originated from. It's interesting that you mentioned the Industrial Revolution. I've always been curious about the kind of physical and social impact industrialization has had on these more traditional forms of heavy manual labor. A friend of mine who we've had on the show, Marilia Coutinho, has a term called body alienation, or how with the march of technological progress, we as human beings have sort of lost touch with the diversity of our own biomechanics. And so to put it more concretely, you know, what have we lost as we went from, say, blacksmithing to modern factory labor? And what I like more about indigenous strength sports, you know, such as what the Basques do or the Scots, is that they're, in some senses, they're preserving those basic movements we do with our bodies, right? And that have given us the genetics that we have today. Well, and, and it's funny that, that you mentioned that because growing up, I remember, so my dad was an iron worker and he was in the Marine Corps and he um, was used to doing, I don't want to say manual labor because it's not like he comes from a family of farmers or ranchers or dairymen or anything, but he learned and was raised to work his body and he used to tell me all the time that there are different kinds of muscle. There's work muscle and then there's gym muscle. And he's, and that explains why you can get these sort of gym hardos who spend tons of hours working out and focusing on these seemingly minuscule muscles. And, yes, they're very strong. They can do, you know, sumo lift the high poles at 280 pounds or 300 pounds or whatever – but you get them out on a farm tossing 110-pound hay bale one after another after another for an hour, and they can't do it. And that goes exactly to what you were talking about is there are parts of our body that we don't use the same way, and there are parts of our body that just aren't trained and we may never train because we don't have to do that manual labor anymore. So you're absolutely right. There is a premium that the boss goes, and again, the Scots, place on being able to do hard work like that. So I assume that bass sports have been around for quite a long time, and I'm curious to know what their status is today. You know, are they professionally organized into teams or individuals? Are they sponsored? 
you're on the right page with that. The sports today are organized and there are professionals who that is their career. I mean, seems only recently that we really had professional CrossFit athletes. And in much of the same vein, we have professional bath sports athletes. And there are some that excel in every different event that they compete in. And then there are some that, that work on teams that they might specialize specifically in wood chopping and sawing. It's not really a big thing here in the States, in France and Spain. Yes, definitely. Even in England, there's growing popularity. Um, Eastern Europe, it seemed like there was growing popularity, but that's kind of died down in light of recent political issues. But they are organized professionally, and there are leagues. There are 18 sports. So the Basque sovereign government has organized of all the 60-plus events, 18 of them, which is abbreviated H18K, and they regulate the competitions every year and throughout the year. Those sports include the ones that I mentioned earlier, as well as human and animal tests, actually racing and competing against oxen and donkeys and horses. Outside the Basque country, there really isn't much of that, except for in the U.S. Every five years, we have the Hialeah Festival in Boise, and that's one of the best places to see professional Basque athletes. I mean, tons of food and drink and dancing and history and all of that, but the sports is really where I find it fascinating because you're right there. You get to, after some of the events, participate in them, and it's a good opportunity to learn more about how they're organized. But I'm so fascinated with this, and my best friend Whitney actually shares my enthusiasm and and my interest in it, that she and I were actually working on bringing back some of the, I don't want to say easier sports, but some of the ones that are a little more familiar to a lot of Americans. We had planned on bringing them back to the Fresno Bass Club's annual picnic, which kicks off the season here in California every May. And we had done tons of research and really worked hard on trying to organize something to bring the sport and make a bigger presence here in California and then hopefully throughout the rest of the states. And we really wanted to increase the interest in these sports because, unfortunately, unlike the Highland Games, it's an area that is quickly losing a lot of followers, you know. And, unfortunately, I don't see there being much of a league or – much more, the preservation of it really is not there. So we're trying to bring that back. And that's why I'm so excited that, you know, you're interested in learning about this because, you know, people listening to this hopefully will find some interest in it and will look for clubs and other people who want to try it out. Maeve, if one were interested, where in the U.S. could a person participate or even find bass sports? I'm on the East Coast, and it sounds like they would be more popular by you on the West Coast. Right. So when a lot of the Boscos emigrated to the United States, they settled out West because it was an area that, that was most familiar to them in terms of landscape, weather, and actually similar cultures. A lot of Scots and Irish settled farther out West and set up these little cultural enclaves. So the Boscos came and settled mostly in California, Nevada, Arizona, Wyoming, Idaho, and Utah. So if we were to look at, say, a heat map of the U.S. showing in red the highest concentration of Basque and blue, the lowest concentration of Basque, 
you would be bluer on the East Coast and more red on the West. But that's not to say that there aren't bass clubs scattered throughout the U.S. The New England Bass Club, which I think is based out of Rhode Island or Connecticut, is a big one that covers all of New England. The New York City Bass Club, which I'm told has a pretty big membership. There's actually a bass club in Washington, D.C., which I didn't know until a couple of months ago. There's one in Georgia. There's a couple in Florida. And then pretty much the whole Midwest is there's nothing in the Midwest until you get farther west, like I, the states I mentioned earlier. But all of those clubs will have something that they kind of specialize in, so to speak. So, for example, here in California, most people will travel throughout the state to go to all the different festivals. And if you were to go to Bakersfield, you're going to see Pilota exhibitions where we have professional handball players from France and Spain come out and play an exhibition game. You could go to Chino and San Francisco where they're going to have a lot of singers and um, which we call cantariac. Lots of singers, lots of dancing. Fresno at this point doesn't have its own niche, which is kind of what Whitney and I were hoping to build was the sports and something that could get people a little more involved in it. So there's really something for everybody at every Basque club. And if, you know, if you're in the D.C. area, New York, New England, there's definitely going to be stuff going on there. <laughs> now, do you have a website or how could people get in touch to either help out with the effort or even just attend? Yeah. So if, if people are interested in finding a Basque club nearest them, they actually can look at the NABO member organizations. So the website for that is in as a Nancy A B A S Q U E dot com. And that's for the for just the United States. If they're looking for bass clubs throughout the world, the best place to look would be that same website, N A B A S Q U E dot E U S. So from there you can look up NABO member organizations. And NABO is the North American Basque Organization. And it will give you a list of every single bass club in the U.S. and in every country that has one registered. And then each one of those has a website and contact information so somebody can find out about membership and events and, and things like that. It's a super helpful it's a super helpful website, and I recommend everybody go and check it out if they have any interest in learning about um, or participating in bass events. Maeve, this has been great. And lastly, I heard that one of the more unique cultural features of the Basque is that it's a very matrilineal society. So I'm wondering, does that kind of bleed into gender equality in Basque country? And how does that play out in sports in terms of, you know, female Basque athletes, at least in terms of Basque world sports? One thing about the Boscos is that even though it's a very um, matrilineal type of culture, one of the things I'm really proud about is it doesn't matter if someone is a man or a woman. You prove your worth by being able to work and getting along with one another. So in terms of professional female athletes, absolutely there are. And there are some events that women excel in and they do much better than the men and vice versa. So if there are any women who had any interest in it, don't let the notion that you've got to be a man or you've got to be strong to do it stop you because that is absolutely not true. And in my 
somewhat biased opinion, I would say that the bachelors are some of the most pro-gender equality people without necessarily having to say that. They let their actions speak for it. I just want to thank Maeve Aguskia for a fascinating look at the Basque and their national sport. Music by Robert Slump. For Scholars and Iron, this is Joe, signing off.